Beth and I'm a psychological wellbeing practitioner from Newcastle. I just wanted to say the biggest thank you to the contributors of the Clinical Psychologist Collective book. I've enjoyed reading this so much and loved having an insight into the range of backgrounds and experiences people have prior to applying for the doctorate and it's been really interesting seeing the potential barriers to the application as well and how I can try and work around this. I really started to doubt myself and whether I was good enough to apply for the clinical psychology doctorate but this has really given me the confidence boost that I needed to give it a shot so the biggest thank you ever. Coming up in today's episode I am joined by Dr Alistair Teager who returns to the podcast this time to talk with us about his experiences of helping set up a new service in Ukraine. It is a fascinating listen, we talk through all kinds of things and I hope you'll find it so useful. If you're looking to become a psychologist then let this be your guide With this podcast at your side You'll be on your way to being qualified It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast With Dr. Marianne Trent Hi, welcome along to the Aspiring Psychologist podcast. I am Dr. Marianne Trent and I'm a qualified clinical psychologist. I've said it before and I will likely say it again. I just love how varied our career in psychology and mental health can be. Um, I love that the last time we met my guest for today, who is Dr. Alistair Teager, we were talking about how to get an assistant psychologist job. And in case you're wondering, that is episode 52. So you can watch that on YouTube or take a listen via Spotify or Apple podcasts. Um, and, you know, that was a really well received episode. And today we are talking about the fact that shortly after we recorded that episode, he went off to Ukraine and has been there a few different times to help set up a service. Um, I really wanted to talk with him to kind of get the down low on what it had been like um, and, you know, to help us think about how we can use our skills um, to benefit others in perhaps very different contexts than that which we learned them in or which we're familiar with ourselves. Honestly, just a privilege to talk to him. I hope that you'll gain a lot from it. We do mention a concept called moral injury. Um, and I thought it might just be useful for me to explain what that is in case you don't know already. So this was a term that I only really became aware of during the pandemic. And it was something that was cropping up for people, um, health staff, for example, who were having to make decisions over who to treat, who to give certain technology to if there's only certain amounts available. And then afterwards, having to then deal with the consequences of those decisions, of that moral decision. Um, and you you kind of can have 
a trauma presentation. So that's what moral injury is. Um, so yeah, just to save you a Google, because I, I, I like this to be a one-stop shop for useful stuff for you. Um, if you've got any ideas for future podcast episodes, please do get in contact with me and let me know. Please also, if you do value this content, please do rate and review it both on Spotify and or um, Apple Podcasts. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please do like, subscribe, share the content to help us get this word of the podcast that is getting really lovely feedback to as many people as possible. Don't let me stop you. Let's dive in. Let's um, reconnect with Alistair and I will see you on the other side of this. Just want to welcome our guest back to the podcast today because we met uh, Dr. Alistair previously um, when we were talking about how to get assistant psychologist jobs. But we were also discussing the very exciting and potentially a little bit worrying um, trip that you were about to make, Alistair, which was to go to Ukraine. Welcome back. Thank you for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. Much appreciated. So can you tell us a little bit about what your experiences were like when you went to Yeah, Ukraine? yeah, of course. Would it help to, I suppose, give a bit of the, the background to how it came about? You know, I think Sure, that would be great. I don't think it's something I thought I was going to be doing as a, an aspiring clinical psychologist. Uh, so, yeah, coming out of training, I worked in neuropsychology. Um, I also worked in major trauma centre, so with people with uh, brain injuries, spinal injuries, musculoskeletal injuries. And I suppose as a part of that, when I was working or overseeing the major trauma service, um, the Ariana Grande concert bombing happened, so the Manchester Arena attack, and we're based at Salford. Um, so we had a number of people come to our um, hospital as part of the major incident. So we provided a lot of the acute psychosocial care. Um, and then more recently, we've sort of uh, developed a bit of a spinal cord injury service as well. So I suppose thinking about Ukraine and what's going on there in the war um, and sort of some of my areas of expertise, I think the, the World Health Organization reached out to a number of services, including um, the Stoke Mandeville, which is the National Spinal Cord Injury Center. And I've, I'm in a couple of networks with guys from there and, and Dr. Jane Duff, who's the, the lead there, she she kind of knew my background and thought, actually, this is probably, probably your... Uh, up your street or within your wheelhouse so so yeah they, they were trying to set up a national rehabilitation center for um casualties of the war civilians and military um with an onus on spinal cord injury and traumatic brain injury so i suppose that's where i thought actually that's probably something i can offer um i wanted to be able to to do something um but wasn't sure that was. And then this landed in my email inbox and I thought, you know, I'm going to gonna follow that up really. So yeah, I suppose that's a bit of the backdrop to it. Um, yeah. Yeah, like it's it's an incredible career that we're in, isn't it? That sometimes something will just drop into your emails that you weren't necessarily pursuing. But once you, you know, once you know about it, you're like, oh, that that is intriguing. I think I would like that. I think I would do that yeah. well. And it's that flexibility of our skills, but also our eagerness to learn and to support and, you know, help people as well, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think I've never been particularly ambitious to want to do one thing or the other, but I've been sometimes in the right place at the right time and perhaps a bit opportunistic. Um 
and obviously with it being the um the war in ukraine people were incredibly supportive from from my hospital um northern carolines they were they wanted to be able to support the effort in some way so they were able to you know provide me with the the leave but also permission to 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 explore it really so yeah just, just went from there really great and how long were you there for so um i worked there off and on between start of december and end of march but i was effectively doing about two weeks in ukraine and then coming back working in nhs for two weeks then going back to ukraine for two weeks um but it's quite difficult because i suppose contextually you know it, it is a war zone so it would take me two or three days to get to the hospital where we're working and that's because i'd have to fly into poland well for starters i'd have to get from chester to stansted which is where most of the flights go to a place called Jezhov in poland then i'd stay there overnight then i'd have to get a un vehicle across the border um to lviv um and then i'd stay over there overnight because you're not allowed to travel in un vehicles during night time and then you've got to line up with them when the transports happen so then I, the next day i'd i'd get a get a lift up to where we were based um so it's quite disjointed but also understandably so um so for if i was out there for 14 to 16 days i might only be in the hospital for eight days because of the travel restrictions really um and i think Personally, I went out for a week in December to start just to get a, a feel for it, which was really useful because it was quite anxiety-provoking to think about where I was going, um, possibly more for my mum, less so my dad, when they were heard what I was going to be doing. Um, so I think it provided them with a bit of a, a reassurance and also it was kind of a dry run for me, you know, sort of get to know the country a bit, get to know what the needs were. And then I went back in uh, in first week of January um to sort of, I suppose start the work in earnest so yeah that's that's that side of things it was it's a beautiful country I've loved being out there like experiencing the culture and stuff but it's also incredibly daunting and um humbling to see what they're going through and what we what we can come back to um yeah, I feel like I've, done, I've learned a tiny amount of culture from some um, Ukrainian refugees my mum had staying with her for a while um, and seeing their pictures of, you know, their homes and their areas where they'd lived before. It was beautiful. And then seeing, yeah. you know, what, what it had been raised to, it was, you yeah. know, just tragic. And it, it was real people, you know, it's really, really emotive isn't it and we're recording this Alistair as you know um, in the time when actually there's lots and lots in the media about um, the Israel attacks and the atrocities that have been happening there and I was in a private practice um, discussion for someone who um, was a clinical psychologist that um, lives and works in Israel but had trained in the UK Mm -hmm. and was really trying to help people um, you know in a crisis situation but isn't necessarily a trauma therapist and we're saying how can I how can I do this how can I be help how can I be help and you know I also work in trauma I was sort of saying well it's very difficult to try and help people find safety when there's so many unanswered questions and when when we can't get that felt sense of safety and of course when we're doing trauma work it's partly it's we're having to say to people it's it's over now you know how do yes. you do that? Yes. How do you manage that when you're in an ongoing situation? Yeah, um, million dollar question, really. I think um, 
one of the things I've talked about uh, in a few of the conferences we've been to or with, with colleagues is actually there's a, a collective trauma going on. You know, the, the psychologist that we were working with. So it's, it's more the role was more around training up the, the psychologists, getting a sense of what they're working with and perhaps identifying needs. Um, but they're going through trauma. They're, you know, they're listening to the radio, watching the news every day. There's a lot of people that they know have been hurt, killed, or friends of friends, etc. So it's it's all very close to home. So them trying to manage their own uh, well-being, for want of a better word, is really tricky. I think because it was a, I suppose, a, a spinal cord injury or SCI centre and a, a, a traumatic brain injury centre as well. There's certainly a degree of trying to get the patients or the clients through rehabilitation or get them engaged in rehabilitation to minimize uh, their difficulties further down the line. But there's lots of other things coming up, you know, lots of guys with with PTSD, um, lots of anxiety, lots of low mood, lots of uh, maladaptive coping strategies. So almost trying to unpick that as well and trying to navigate it. And then also displacement. So millions of people have had to move and millions of people can't go back to where they are from. So even just trying to get these guys back discharge from the hospital is a real a real tricky thing um i've been really impressed though with you know for saying in ukraine there's not a, a formal pathway for psychologists a lot of the stuff they're doing is similar to what we do but perhaps not necessarily with our uh clinical training or uh evidence base or sort of theory practice links but it it, it does make sense um so i think for me is trying to provide them or help them think about core skills. Um, so there's things like um, motivational in- interviewing techniques and even just goal setting. Um, also thinking about uh, adjustment after spinal injury. But with me only being out there effectively two or three months, I was never going to be able to train them in a, a therapeutic orientation. So we were trying to recommend that the the WHO and the Ukrainian Ministry of Health look at getting them formal or accredited qualifications in things like CBT and in EMDR because it's a recognition to the fact that those things would be helpful for a variety of reasons for the patients they were working with. So yeah, really multifactorial and like I say, it's difficult to concentrate on one thing when there's a backdrop of systemic uh, problems that you're not going to be able to resolve. Absolutely. And I guess it's it's knowing that what you're doing is all that can be done right now and that it's yeah. helpful and worthwhile. Yeah, that's that's something I've reflected on a fair bit because, again, I knew I was doing a relatively short-term contract and I knew I wouldn't um, be able to do everything that would be possible, the sort of moral injury side of things. Um, but I suppose being in amongst that that system, that ecosystem, you get more of an idea of what the, the government are doing or how the people are seeing things. So um, Zelensky's wife is the, the first lady and she's very much on the mental health ticket. She's really promoting that stuff for civilians, for the military, but also those providing care. Um, and I think from talking to the psychologists in Ukraine as well, um, mental health is taboo. Um, it, is mo- it is in most places, but they feel that it's very much so out there very proud country but i think this is bringing it to the surface and i think it might be changing the culture in some ways and in trying to 
um, say that it, ca- it does and can happen to people and we need to think about how we support people before, during and after in order to, to try and help people get better. Absolutely. And, you know, to be human is to, uh, you know, actually absolutely be unifying. But it sounds like actually it's just it's culture and kind of traditions that dictate how mental health is responded to. But actually the symptoms of mental health, health are pretty pretty consistent across our human population yeah yeah i think um yeah i think you're right there i think there's definitely cultural language difficulties uh, or, or differences but there's often commonalities that we can see between people as well i'm intrigued in your opinion so today um i've been on lbc radio because um a very big newspaper in the uk had decided to print a really emotive photo Um, I won't share too much information about it in case it's triggering for people but the question I was asked is was it right to print that is there Mm. a responsibility to print that and they were really pushing me on that and I was sort of dancing around that topic because you know in essence my answer is maybe not in baby loss awareness week (laughs) Um, you know there's, there's better times we could do that um but it's so triggering to people this kind of emotive photography what's yep. your viewpoint on that alistair so obviously i'm not uh, not an expert in it but i did go to a talk at the european congress of psychology in brighton over the summer and um they had a an expert from the us on this very topic and her advice was if there's new stories with images that are potentially traumatizing then she covers them up she doesn't click on the videos. She might read the text, but she's their evidence is that if you engage with the picture or the video, you're more likely to get secondary traumatization than you were if you just to read the text. So that's not my opinion, but I well, I, I, I get it, I agree with it, and I'm trying to practice that a bit to myself. Um, but that's where they sat with it. Um but yeah, I wouldn't all like to comment on the the, the moral duty of a, a newspaper because it's difficult because you've got raising awareness of things that are going on versus how do you do that and what content do you put out there for others to see yeah i agree and and in the pre-production chat that i'd had um i was saying you know this this does kind of make us aware of what humanity is capable of you know in terms of the compassionate focused trauma you know approach you know humans are capable of doing really awful things on purpose to other people um but also we're capable of imagining you know we don't necessarily need to see a photo to you know to have it paint a thousand words Um, Mm. and sometimes you don't need to see pictures of people that are wounded sometimes just the setting where they've been wounded is equally as powerful Mm. you know I'm still struck with the the images of when um, Osama bin Laden was was killed that was really really powerful you didn't see him but you saw the room and that's you know it is powerful and I guess when we're working with people who either are traumatized or have been traumatized um there's a real impact of vicarious trauma both upon ourselves but uh, you know upon people that you'll have been working with as well um how do we look after ourselves in terms of vicarious trauma how have you been looking after yourself yeah i think before i went out i was trying to make sure trying to think about that before i needed to um and you know it's interesting the first when i went out in december we're in a hotel that was slightly out of the city that we were based in 
Um, and, you know, we'd go to work in the morning, get back at four-ish, but it was winter, it was cold, it was dark. There's nothing else around particularly. Um, you think about the things that we do around uh, achievement, connection, uh, I suppose, enjoy, enjoyment. You know, um, internet connectivity was poor, so it was difficult to speak to people back home or even just go on social media to connect with people or stream stuff. Um, there wasn't a gym in the hotel, so you couldn't necessarily do anything to, to keep yourself active. Um, you couldn't go out for a walk because we we're on a dual carriageway. The nearest thing was like a, a supermarket half a mile away. And so I, I felt that the first time around. I thought, you know, I, I took out some gym gear to work out in the room. Um, I tried to think about eating healthily, but that's very difficult when you're living in a hotel. Um, so I think as a, I suppose as a WHO team, we sort of agreed that we'd move into the city for the for the January to March phase, because for me, I wanted to be a part of it. And I like to go for a coffee or I like to go to the gym or I like to have a few options <laughs> once I get back from work. And that was a really strong move to, I suppose, be closer to it. And also we're able to experience the Ukrainian culture a bit more. You know, I I went to a coffee shop regularly in the morning and got, they got to know my order. Um, I went, I joined a gym and went to that like several times a week. And that was great for me because, you know, I usually go out mountain biking or swimming or going to the gym and stuff. Um, there were lots of restaurants we could go to. So again, sort of like dipping into that. I think in addition to that, you've also got to think about what you eat. So my routine when I, I've had to think about why, why I eat when I get back, because, you know, I probably put about 10 pounds from just sort of living the life and eating in hotels or restaurants three times a day. Um, and then I suppose the other things is trying to think about, again, foundation stuff, but, you know, not drinking particularly, you know, I'm not a big drinker, but I'd had to make sure that I watched that because it's quite easy to, when you're meeting new people or you've got sort of meetings with officials, you have a drink called the tradition around it and, um, sleep, um, sleeping somewhere different. I'm not gonna lie. There were air raids or air raid sirens, you know, sort of, uh, every couple of days and they could be any time of the day. They could be in the middle of the night. They could be for 10 minutes. It could be for three hours. So it's trying to think about, you know, I often sleep with earplugs and an eye mask. They definitely came with me, had some herbal sleeping stuff that I took occasionally, but that was just to try and keep me going because, um, it's easy to say, but you're in threat mode most of the time. And the work we were doing was pretty intense. I was also trying to navigate doing stuff back here um, by either providing supervision or dipping in on more complex cases that I'd left behind. So it's almost like give yourself permission to say, actually, I'll, I'll dip out of this or I'm not going to go to that or I need to, I'm going to give myself permission to self-care a bit. Um, it's all very well and good saying that, but it's very hard to do it. So I think for me going out there and having that was really important. And then when I came back, you know, it probably take, anything from a few days to maybe a week or so to just uh, decompress. You know, I wasn't like up here, but I was a bit more down, <laughs> you know, sort of the, the sort of the uh, counter counter side to that. So again, for me, it's trying to do stuff with my wife and my dog and meet mates or organize a, a night or a day where I'd go, actually, I'll put this in the diary because when I come back, I might not want to do that. But if there's something already organized, it's kind of in the offing. Um, so yeah, just, I suppose being, for me, being a bit organized, thinking ahead of time about stuff that I know is good for me and then trying to stick to it <laughs> or getting other people to remind me for it. You know, I think, um, after say that one of my trainees that 
was back in Salford, you know, before I went out, I was like checking on me because I might be a bit more irritable than normal. I might be a bit tired. And she was great at just sort of asking that question. Um, because again, when you're in a, a perceived, perceived position of power, people don't necessarily ask. Um, but it was really good just to have someone that within a safe space, almost like a peer supervision element, just to try and make sure that, you know, I'm not going down a path or that I'm not thinking too much, I'd say. Yeah. So yeah, there was a few things that, you know, we teach others to do and I wanted to practice what we preach. Um, I haven't done anything specific in terms of supervision or seeking, I suppose, uh, counseling support because I don't think it's, I've been one step separate from that and it was short term basis, but you know, if that, comes up in the future that's not something i would shy away from for sure oh you I mean you said the words right out of my mouth but you really have been practicing what we preach you know the the basics of eating sleeping yeah. activity scheduling you know trying to look for the things that you know keep you well generally yeah. um, and trying to see what you can do to to keep those as constant as possible but um yeah, it made me think Made me think about some of my conversations with my um with the, the people that were staying with my mum and they were like there's too much too many too many vegetables here in this country we need more meat we need yeah. more meat yeah and so I can see how if that's kind of what you were around that you might have put on more weight than you're used oh, to yeah. as well very much so <laughs> it's a lot harder to lose when you're a bit older as well <laughs> oh yeah, I hear you I hear you <laughs> um but you know I was I've only, it's only the second time I've met you. Yeah. Um, I follow you on Twitter and was trying yeah, to follow yeah. your exploits on there a little bit. Are we allowed to say Twitter anymore? I don't think we are. X, whatever it is. Um, but, you know, like your parents, I was yeah. worried about you. Yeah. You know? and yeah. Sa- sadly, when you were there, there were two British journalists, it turned out, who were missing and did not survive. Yeah. But to begin yeah. with, that was reported as two British men and you know everybody who knows you and everybody who knows them of course would have been thinking oh gosh oh gosh you know and it's very difficult yeah it wasn't um, easy for you either it's it's tricky because I'm also also wasn't allowed to say where I was um and there were people who didn't know but I, I don't I think I think from my side I was able to tell broadly people back home where I was and I was sort of northwestern Ukraine which is very reassuring when you think how far away it is from things but the yeah like say people who slightly more removed or I might be able to who, who won't got a message from me just in general um were wondering what was going on and, and, and interestingly a lot of my friends who I worked with out there from the WHO is, have still been working out there and it's been harder for me back here seeing what's going on out there and then going oh gosh is that is that near you or there is something near them and, and worrying about them more now I'm back than I was about myself when I was out there. I felt far safer when I was out there than people might, might thought I would have been. So yeah, that was, that was odd. Um, but yeah, I think, um, I mean, it was always, fun, it was funny telling my, my mum and my dad about it because my mum worked for the NHS for uh, 40 or 50 years as a nurse. And she did a bit of work in, in Hong Kong over that time. And, so she was used. She she was sort of used to the idea of doing a bit of work away, um, but I think I, I told her, you know, oh, you know, I've got a job. It's really exciting. Um, I'm going to be working for the WHO. She's like, oh, that's amazing. That's fantastic. And then she goes, where? And I was like, oh, in Ukraine. And then the, I, I took a screenshot of it at the time because I was, <laughs> but she it was crestfallen. But at the same time, there's so much pride in it. And I think um, I think that was the heartening thing. I didn't want to make people too worried or too upset but at the same time it's a very 
just thing to be doing. Um, and I think if I thought it was too dangerous, I would have just probably pulled out or um, tried to end the contract early. So, yeah, it, it's difficult, isn't it? We have it in the UK. If there's a major incident in London, I've had that with friends. Like 2007, mates working in London and the bus bombing. And I was like, oh, gosh, and there's the whole check-in thing and that sort of stuff. So, mm. yeah, I've seen it from the other side. Um, I think I think that's the thing, isn't it? I was struck by that today. So just before we met, I popped to Aldi. <laughs> Um, yeah. to to get some bits and pieces and and bought myself a new pair of slippers which yeah, I'm yeah, very yeah. excited very excited about but this is the thing isn't it people are just going about their normal lives yes um and you know even in Israel this time last week people were just out there buying slippers and yep. dishwasher tablets you know yep. and it's when it just catches you in the middle of your ordinary life yeah. it's yeah. really derailing yeah I think um supposed to reflect on what it looked like out there as well there is a new normal for the guys in ukraine um there's a curfew still at 11 p.m for everyone across the country um there's air raids and people are supposed to go to air raid shelters but depending on where you are you're more or less likely to do that because there's an app that tells you there's an air raid there's also people messaging saying oh no it's it's not here it's gone past here etc um Everyone's got power banks because phones and electricity uh, can go down. Similarly, you walk down the high street, every shop's got a sort of a petrol generator outside for when the power cuts happen. Um, the transport infrastructure has been affected because they've had to invest in the military. So getting around is a lot harder. The roads are a lot more um, cut up. But, you know, there's, um, there's a big belief amongst the Ukrainian population about winning and also that this is the right thing to do. And... Um, I think that's reflected in some of the people who've joined the um, joined the effort from neighbouring countries because they're worried about being next. So it's a really, really interesting one because they have, I suppose they have adjusted to it, but it's still not right. Um, one of the things that was really telling was one of our drivers was talking about, you know, if an air raid happens during school hours, the school shuts. So parents have to go get the kids, pull them out of school. And I'm like, well, I said, there's a generational trauma about to happen or what are the generational effects of people not getting adequate access to education over time what does it affect people going into employment you know lots of working age men are in the military um so yeah there's there's just a lot of dynamics where people have sort of accepted a new norm but there's no end point in size how do you carry that on really yeah really important questions really important questions and i guess we're we're humans and we adapt don't yeah. we because what are the other choices you know no it's um it's it's just such a huge question isn't it you know we've not experienced wartime in our country you know there's a few generations back you have but it's very different when you see it first hand or even second hand you know and i just had not imagined there'd be an air raid app you know there are apps for everything but they are pretty useful. It's that's, that's it, a pretty useful app to have if you it, need it. It's incredible. Yeah, I, I, again, I didn't think that would be the case, but I think you know I'd had friends who'd been out in Japan and they'd get warnings about tornadoes, and I was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then it was when I got to Ukraine, so, oh yeah, you need to download this. This will tell you when the air raid starts and when it stops, and you know um, where we were staying as well. They had a siren, and it is what you hear in the films from the Blitz. It's exactly that. And it's like, you feel like you're transported back in time. And it's a very evocative 
um, noise. Um, very, very loud, obviously, but it's just, again, it's some, that's something that will stick with me. You know, when I hear something mm. on the TV, I was like, oh, sort of transported back, not in a reliving sense, but it's just reminiscent, you know. So it's loud, but, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to a sound bath class, but some certain frequencies resonate in your body. Right. You know, do you, have yeah, that ex- okay. do you have that experience with it? I suppose thinking about it now, not, I, I, had, I usually had earplugs in, um, but, yeah, I don't think I had that per se, but I think I'd probably acclimatised to it in a way. I don't know if it, you know, I've, I've been, we've we holidayed in like Hebden Bridge and they've had similar sirens around flooding, um, so I wonder, you know, I wonder if there's a, a certain pitch that they have it. So it is, like I say, resonating in a, in a very physical way. Yeah. Oh, I've had so many questions and conversations to yeah. have with you. But, you know, if people are moved or intrigued about what we're talking about, is there a best place they can learn or is there a best place they can offer any support themselves, Alistair? Oh, gosh, I don't know, really. I think... It's, it's tricky because I think there was a big, I suppose, a big move early on in the war about people offering support and sending things out there. But I don't know how that looks at the moment. Um, I suppose most big cities have got Ukrainian communities that we could reach out to. Um, but aside from that, I suppose for me, I'm trying to share the good work that's being done out there and, and share it as a mental health is on the agenda and the WHO and the Ministry of Health out there are, are pushing this. But it's difficult to suppose it's difficult to get that momentum or sometimes to know what to do and I've got I've had a very small part to play but I suppose I'm just trying to at the moment support the guys I know in being able to support more people so almost like multiplier effect you know so yeah I'm not sure really Mary I'm sorry yeah okay that's all right um and you know you feel like it's a small part but I guess Hmm. for me I know that the goodness that you're putting in there and the good Hmm. practice and the really sound principles of how to set up a service in a compassionate, holistic way are going to be far reaching, not just mm-hmm. immediate, you know, just not just now, but in years and years to come. So I think, you know, I feel really proud of you as a human, but also really proud of the profession that you've been able to do that and you've been able to to offer that at such an important time for for that country so you know not my place to be proud of you but I am all the same and thank you for doing this really important work and to share your skills so richly and freely you know at at risk to yourself. Mm. No um, you know thank you it's very very nice of you to say I think it's it's always nice to hear isn't it that that people are proud of you and, and glad that you've done what you've done I don't think I'd I'd say that's what I did it for is something I thought I can do is within my my zone of proximal development it's within my wheelhouse to a degree but perhaps a bit of a stretch um but yeah I think when I was leaving Ukraine and when I was finishing out there you got a sense of the outpouring of the gratitude and you know when you walk down the streets people are generally like why are you here um and then when they find out there's similar sort of a bit of amazement but also then a real outpouring of love and affection for the fact that you're actually wanting to put yourself in in that situation and I was probably a bit blasé about it at the start I'm probably still a bit now but yeah I think over time I'll probably think about the gravity of it and I think seeing um, the psychologist particular sort of like Nadia who's one of the ones I've been mentoring and seeing how she's come on since I first went out there and she was almost learning and sitting in the stuff I was doing to, to now when she's delivering 
uh, teaching or CPD for others is great. And like I said, hopefully there's just a thin foundation that they can then build on and, and provide to others because previously it's probably been, it's not been a particularly um, uh, popular profession, similar to OT, relatively new or sort of undersourced or uh, lack of structure. So um, hopefully, unfortunately, this has brought it to the surface, but hopefully there is some good coming out of it in terms of the, the public perception of, of psychology being changed. Mm. And uh, you're making me think about when I've worked with um, service personnel and when I've worked with people that work in um, the police and in the yeah. um, fire service, you know, it's often a certain breed of person that is able to run towards things that yeah. people would usually yeah. run away from. Would yeah. you say you're kind of a white knuckle sort of adrenaline sort of guy generally, <laughs> or is that, is this new? I was going to say no, but then I'll probably, then you probably ask me a follow-up question. I'm like, oh yeah, I've done that and I've done that and I've done that. So I think I do, I do those sort of things, but I'm not sort of a, I'm not necessarily an adrenaline junkie, but I do, um, I've always been in competitive sports or done things that I think to relax, I've always done something quite active um but yeah i think i think it's been, again just going back to what you're saying about sort of people running towards it a lot of the guys we saw out there were military obviously and i suppose there's there's a lot of them who wanted to get straight back into it um or felt guilty about not being able to go back and for me i was just like i've, I've never been inclined to join the military i've always been very uh impassioned about people who have but it was just very humbling to see these lads with these awful injuries going, okay, so I want to go back and, and fight for my country. I want, I've got a band of brothers or a band of sisters that I want to, to be in amongst again. So yeah, I, 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 I like doing things that are energizing, but yeah, it's, uh, I wouldn't say I've run towards it quite so much. No. Okay. Well, thank you so much for taking time on your day off as well. Like this again, dedication to the cause. Um, it's been I'll take absolute... it back as toil. It's fine. <laughs> okay. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you, um, and thank you for coming back on again because it feels like a really important conversation. And I wanted to just pay kudos to the really important work that you and your team have been doing. No, thank you, Marion. It's really nice to, I suppose, be, be invited back on and, I suppose, talk about something different. And I suppose share that psychology is not just one element. And you know, if there's something that takes you fancy there's an option for you to try and pursue that as you know if you if you look into it absolutely it's a multifaceted career and i just yeah. you know i'm never stopped being blown away for the directions that a single psychology degree can take you in you exactly. know it's incredible stuff um thank you again and uh yeah i hope you have a lovely weekend and it's <laughs> restful i want you to rest i don't i want you uh, to yeah, rest i'm rested don't worry yourself. i've been out for brunch i'm gonna walk the dog everything's good okay my uh, my desire to keep you safe is like oh let's look up I'm, 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 I'm not anywhere ridiculous at the moment <laughs> okay thank you again for your time thanks maria Oh, thank you so much for watching. Um, I hope that you found that as interesting uh, an experience to listen to or to watch if you're watching on YouTube as I did to speak to Alistair. You know, I said it all really, just what a privilege to speak to him and what incredible work he's done. And yeah, I just feel really proud of him and of our profession. I would love your thoughts on this episode. Please do come and connect with me on socials. I'm Dr. Marianne Trent everywhere, um, but also do come along and um, join the Aspiring Psychologist Community free Facebook group. Please do either watch the Compassionate Q&As for Psychology Application Season either live 
um, or on replay by going along to YouTube, clicking um, my videos, Dr. Marianne Trent, going to the live tab and you'll find them all there. They're also in the playlists. Yeah. Tell your friends if you do find this useful and if you like the sort of things and the conversations that I have and the support that I can offer, do also consider um, the Aspiring Psychologist membership, which is doing great things. Um, thank you so much for allowing me to be part of your world and for being part of mine. Next episode of the Aspiring Psychologist podcast is available from 6am on Monday. Until then, be kind to yourselves. Take care. If you're looking to become a psychologist, then let this be your guide. With this podcast at your side, you'll be on your way to being qualified. It's the Aspiring Psychologist Podcast with Dr. Marianne Trent. My name is Diakolola Amujo. I am a recent psychology graduate from Ireland. I am also an aspiring clinical psychologist. Dr. Marion's book, The Clinical Psychologist Collective, has been so helpful to me on this journey to becoming a clinical psychologist. As I plan to continue postgraduate studies in the UK, I found it extremely useful that this book provided in-depth information on the UK DeClinSci application process. I enjoyed reading about the experiences of both qualified and trainee clinical psychologists. The various narratives were my favorite part of the book as everyone's story was different and it provided amazing insights into the clinical psychology journey. I would definitely recommend this book to anyone interested in psychology and aspires to become a clinical psychologist.